one of followers. This is the old timer coming to you from downtown Memphis with episode 30. I cannot believe this is episode 30. Seems like I just got started maybe three months ago, I guess, which I did. But anyway, it's going to be episode 30. It's going to be what, where, and when was the first national duck calling championship contest. And we're going to find out. Be some news to a lot of people. And this is going to be given over three episodes. The first episode is going to carry us to Stuttgart, where they have the world's championship duck calling contest. And the very first one was held in 1936. So that'll be, well, I'll take you and you from how that all got started, what transpired in between that 1936 and when it actually started. And then episode two will be the championship for the second year, 1937, and take you through the early 1940s, and we'll stop there. My third episode you're going to find quite interesting. I suggest, by all means, listen to the first and second episode, but the third one will be somewhat eye-opening on where the first, what, where, and when the first National Duck Calling Championship contest was held and when and where and all of that stuff. So be sure to tune in for episode three. But before we get started on episode 30, I just want to, I just want to go back. You know, us contemporary waterfowlers, we, we just can't comprehend, or I guess let me just say myself, can't comprehend the amount of bountiful waterfowl and game that existed from colonial times in 1607 and forward. All the westward movement off of the eastern coast as they travel westward, they just went from one paradise of hunting, a hunter Edens or a hunter paradise, whatever you want to call it. As they advanced westward, they just went into a, another hunter's Eden. Unbelievable. And Memphis was right when it got this far. Memphis became incorporated in 1809. It was surrounded by unbelievable game. That's the reason the National Bird Dog Museum is established in Grand Junction, Tennessee, which is 70 miles east of Memphis. And then you have the World's Duck Calling Championship at Stuttgart, which is another 90 miles west of Memphis over in the Grand Prairie. But all you had to do in Memphis was cross the river into Arkansas and you were already in the game. Or just travel to the outskirts of Memphis in 1819 and forward and you were in, in game everywhere. So I just want to give you a little bit, I think from now on, maybe instead of doing a reflection for a while, I'll just start off with little tidbits of history and give you some idea what game was like across the United States. And I'll select different parts of the country to do that with. I'm going to start off with the very first one is in Memphis, and it's in 1876, and it has to do with a snipe hunt. And these are all three hunters. P.H. Bryson, a Mr. Bulls, and a Horsefall. Now, P.H. Bryson, probably most of you don't know, but if you're a Memphis historian uh, for his hunting, you know that he was the originator, uh, eventually, of the World's Championship Bird Dog Trials in uh, Grand Junction, which started in 1896. And then Horsefall was not from Memphis. Mr. Bowles, William Bowles was, though. But Horsefall, and I can't think of his first name, but he was from a Duval Bluff over in the Grand Prairie. And he lived in Memphis for a while training bird dogs. He was an excellent trainer and handler of bird dogs, pointers, and setters. 
So they're going on a, they're going to take a train over from Memphis to Duval's Bluff in the Grand Prairie for a prairie chicken hunt. And as I said, this is in April, the first week of April of 1876. So the three started on a snipe shooting excursion near Duval's Bluff, Arkansas. The first day, now get this, they had a poor success, killing only 110 snipes. The second day, between 12 o'clock noon and 4 o'clock, they bagged 147. And it doesn't say in this news clip what whether that was successful or not. But imagine that. Folks, the most snipes I ever killed, of course, you had a limit when I was doing it. But I killed the limit on two or three occasions. But they didn't have a limit back then. So this is the rest of the story. Taken all together, their expectations were not realized. Get that. The shooting being by no means as good as last year. Man, I'd like to see seen that year when you and hunted it. In consequence of the weather being very cold, but there was in store for Messrs. Bryson and Bowles a greater disappointment yet. Now, you have to imagine this. The train just went from Memphis to Little Rock. I think it was in 1872, so this about four years they've had train and to, to Little Rock where they could go from Memphis. They used to have to go by steamboat down the Mississippi River to the White River and then up to Vols Bluff. But anyway, we think we go through a lot of trouble, you know, fighting mud and flooding and all that stuff. But listen to this. When they left Memphis, it was their intentions to return home on the following Tuesday. But when they were ready to leave for home, there was no railroad to carry them. The overflow of the Mississippi having washed it away. So they were impelled to remain for five days, waterlogged, and return home without a feather their game having all spoiled. Snipe shooting at Duval's Bluff has its bright and dark phases. Last year, if we mistake not, the horses of a shooting party took it into their heads to return home and leave the Nimrods to follow their example and foot it the rest of the way. Folks, we don't have near the trouble they used to have in the old days. I tell you, when the steamboat came in, that solved a lot of their transportation problems. And then when the railroads came in, that really solved their problems. They could just about go anywhere. So here we go with episode 30. What, where, and when was the first National Duck Calling Championship contest? The First World War was a global war that lasted from July the 28th, 1914 to November the 11th, 1918. With its end, the American Legion was chartered by Congress in 1919 as a patriotic veterans organization. Focusing on services to veterans, service members, and communities, the Legion evolved from a group of war-weary veterans of World War I into one of the most influential nonprofit groups in the United States. Stuttgart would be a part of that, as Daniel Harder's American Legion post 48 was chartered in 1919. Stuttgart was a proud city. It was proud of the fact this county was producing more rice than any other county in Arkansas and fixing it up for the rest of the country in its rice mills, along with feeding the military during the war. It was proud because ducks blackened the sky, even though they might be scarce elsewhere. Here, sportsmen found every fall and winter ample opportunities for their favorite sport, 
of duck hunting, not only in Arkansas County, but also in the other Grand Prairie counties. The establishment of a great grain-growing area in this region, which harvested its crops usually from the last weeks of September onward, began early to attract many ducks, which commonly used the Mississippi Flyway every fall on their way from the Canadian prairies to the Gulf Coast. Since the winters in Arkansas were usually mild up to the new year, at least, thousands of ducks spent most of the winter season in the wetlands adjoining the rice woodfield regions, where feeding was easy. In 1923, the businessmen of Stuttgart, cooperating with the Post, were actively in charge of the rice carnival, which had its beginning in 1909. Fox Film Corporation and the Platt Cinema, who supplied his clients with newsreels of motion pictures of great events and celebration, contacted the group asking to film the carnival. So they both attended the 1923 Rice Carnival at Stuttgart, from which their newsreels were shown in theaters across the nation, including the Malco in Stuttgart, at a time before there was TV. With that in mind, the Daniel Harder's Post 48 in Stuttgart in 1924 came up with a new idea of hosting an annual dinner of celebration, which hopefully would draw more attention to Stuttgart. To do so, it used its biggest megaphone to tell the rest of the Legion's post in the nation to come and feast upon rice and rice, fattened ducks, and to duck hunt. To make the event even more popular, the annual dinners would be held just before the opening day of the duck season, which the post hoped would attract a large attendance. For many years, the annual duck dinner given by the post was one of the biggest Legion affairs in the nation. Its membership expanded every year for some 12 years, from 1919 through 1930, when the Great Depression hit, put an end to it. No matter, Arkansan O.L. Bodenhammer of El Dorado, Arkansas, was elected the national commander on October the 3rd, 1929, without a roll call the first to ever do so in Legion history. The following year, in 1930, he was given the honor of giving the opening speech for the 12th anniversary of the Wild Duck Dinner. It was a big affair. Arkansas County rice fattened ducks were served to 500 attendees from the state and across the nation. Members of the Post Auxiliary Unit took exactly 23 minutes in carrying the issue of roast ducks, rice, potatoes, pumpkin pie, and coffee to each of the 500 attendees. Harvey Parnell, Governor of Arkansas, introduced National Commander Bodenhammer. The governor had driven 150 miles after attending a funeral for the purpose of introducing him, although National Executive Committee man Joseph Morrison of Stuttgart, who acted as Toastmaster, intimated that the wild duck influenced the governor also. Commander Bodenhammer, during his two years as commander and before his death, did all he could to attract wide attention to the Stuttgart Annual Wild Duck Dinner. In December 1932, Daniel Harder's Post 48 advertised for the Annual Duck Dinner. As such, wild ducks grow fat in Arkansas even in Depression years, and Daniel Harder's Post of Stuttgart, the heart of the rice belt, sends word that the tenderest and fattest ducks 
which post epicures could provide will be carved on the tables before National Commander Lewis Johnson when he will be guest of honor at the post annual duck dinner in December. Johnson was the 15th National Commander of the American Legion from 1932 to 1933, so he followed Vaudenhammer. By that time, the post had become famous for its annual duck dinners, and the fact that it had increased its membership for 15 successive years was mostly credited to that event. Before National Commander Johnson arrived, it had enrolled for the new year 293 members, one more than it had in 1932. Remember now, this is during the Great Depression, and actually also the Dust Bowl years had started in 1931, and that would decimate the duck population. So continuing on, Arkansas celebrated the arrival of National Commanders Johnson by staging a snowstorm which blocked the railroads and highways. Commander Johnson was only able to get to Arkansas from Little Rock, a distance of 60 miles, when the Missouri Pacific Transportation Company gave him a special bus. The trip took three hours. In December 1934, with tables decorated with two products for which Stuttgart and Arkansas County had become famous, rice and fat ducks deliciously roasted, the Daniel Harner's Post held its 10th annual banquet in honor of Stuttgart businessmen at the First Christian Church on a Friday night. National Commander Frank N. Samuel, in front of more than 500 businessmen, were introduced by past post Commander Charles Q. Kelly of Little Rock. The duck season was from November the 6th to December the 15th, with no hunting on Sunday or Monday. The limit was 12. Remember now, this is during the duck bowl year, so the, the uh, number of days that it could hunt was uh, reduced. Unfortunately, the dinners were discontinued because of a combination of circumstances in 1935. Increased attendance requiring more and more ducks in the, during the time of duck depression. The effect of the drought during the Dust Bowl years, which depleted the annual duck hatch, and increasingly stringent regulations governing the taking of wild ducks. These three, plus the lingering Great Depression and other factors, caused the annual dinner in 1935 to be abandoned. For many years, the annual duck dinner given by the Post at Stuttgart was nationally known, and this discontinuous in 1935 was genuinely regretted Arkansas legionnaires and many from across the nation. With no way to celebrate the opening of the hunting season in this duck hunter's paradise, the Post knew they needed another unique annual event to take its place. To achieve that objective, three Stuttgart sportsmen, Dr. Hugh V. Glenn, Thad McCollum, and Vern Tyndall, were appointed after the 1935-1936 dusk season to come up with an annual event. The three knew that eastern Arkansas had more ducks per square mile in the rice territory around Stuttgart than in any other section of the United States. Furthermore, they were aware that a striking photograph of Goose Lake on the White River, taken in 1925, had aroused much attention to the White River bottoms of green timber shooting after being published in newspapers. Furthermore, images of the wetlands of eastern Arkansas blanketed with ducks had been published in the December 31, 1933 edition 
of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which contained views taken on George Wilcox Sanctuary to the southeast of Stuttgart on the White River and on postcards of Wilcox Lake, published in 1934. Wilcox Lake appeared in other newspapers, both in this nation and in England. The Illustrated London, published March 10, 1934, two page full, had two full pages of photos of vast flocks of ducks and another one of Wilcox's unique sanctuaries named Open Lake. In addition, it had photos of Wilcox himself and said he who protects the ducks as he allowed no hunting on his two sanctuaries. The Stansbury Herald of Stansbury, Missouri reported January the 8th, 1934, one of the greatest concentrations of waterfowl to be found in the United States has been established on the property of George S. Wilcox in the White River Bottoms in Arkansas County, Arkansas. Now, Stuttgart was in Arkansas County also, and it was about 25 miles from Stuttgart, where Wilcox's place was. It is estimated there are over 1 million ducks on the 2,000 acres of timber-studded water flats on the Wilcox Sanctuary Open Lake. Open Lake, a 110-acre body of water, has been freaked. This is a newspaper reported. Open Lake, a 110-acre body of water, has been frequented by wild ducks for at least a generation, but it was not until Wilcox bought it about seven years ago. That was in 1934, so that would be about 1927. So he bought it about seven years ago and began to protect it that it required importance at a sanctuary. Not a shot has been fired at a duck on Open Lake in seven years. During fine weather, the waterfowl rest on Open Lake and on two other flats during the day and about sundown fly to the rice fields. Now that's in the uh, end of the quotation from the Stanbury Herald of Stanbury, Missouri. Continuing on. And the three Stuttgart legionnaires who I mentioned earlier, Glenn, McCollum, and Tyndall, were aware that the local duck callers made a living by marking hunting and guiding city-bred hunters to spots in the nearby swamps, lakes, bayous, rice fields, and flooded timber, which the ducks frequented, and once there called the ducks up to their guns. And the three knew of stories published in the Boston Globe. And this is Boston, Massachusetts. So the three knew of the stories published in the Boston Globe in March 1935 about a national sportsman show to be conducted in Boston by the Campbell Fairbanks Exposition Incorporated, a Massachusetts corporation engaged in the business of promoting, holding, and supervising fairs and expositions across the country. Selden H. Fairbanks, head of the Campbell's Fairbanks Exposition Incorporated, had conducted expositions across New England and the country. For the Boston show of 1935, they added a new event, and the Boston Globe reported about the event in the winter. Now listen up. The West has its hog callers and cow callers, but it has remained for Boston to develop the first duck calling champion in the person of Joseph E. Gregory, who, with his sister, Mrs. Elizabeth E. Curtis, who takes care of the Jamaica Pond Boathouse, that's in Massachusetts. There are, of course, many mechanical duck calls. This is a newspaper continuing to report the Boston Globe. 
There are, of course, many mechanical duck calls on the market used by sportsmen, but Mr. Gregory is nothing like those contrivances. His call is, in fact, nothing but a plain whistle produced by his lips. It wouldn't be effective anywhere else. The answer is he has tra trained the Jamaican pond ducks to come to be fed when he whistles. To them, that whistle means dinner time, and they flock to him by scores. For the 1936 exposition, Campbell Fairbanks left Boston for New York with his next event scheduled from February the 28th through March the 7th of 1936. Boston had hosted the event for the previous eight years, while it had been 1915 since New York had hosted an event of this nature. The New York Brooklyn Daily Eagle published a column entitled Wanted Duck Yodlers for Warbling Event. It was to be an eight-day sportsman show to be held at the Grand Central Palace in New York City, which would occupy four floors. It had many exhibitors in the program of competitive events, including fly casting, log rolling, archery, rifle range shooting, and moose and duck calling. The latter hosted Thursday, March the 7th, by artist Lynn Boyne Hunt. And Lynn Boyne Hunt was a famous artist, especially waterfowl during that time. So anyway, it was to be hosted Thursday, March the 7th, by artist Lynn Borg Hunt, who also acted as a judge, along with F.H. Schaffler and Rolf Floyd Jr., the latter a wealthy Long Islander. F.H. Schaffner was the longtime president of Von Lingernicke and Det Board in New York, a sporting goods store, and it was a famous, legendary sporting goods store in New York. And he was vice president of Abercrombie and Fitch, and most people know who Abercrombie and Fitch was in New York. And he was a captain in the First World War. Legendary former champion trap shooter of New York, he was. He was also a member of the Athletic Club and an authority on fine guns. That was the end of that dictation. But the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported further in another edition. Help callers, they said in quotations. This strange contribution to the unemployment situation may appear today on the facade of the Grand Central Palace, where the sportsman show is in progress. With a well-publicized duck calling contest scheduled as tomorrow's main event, the management is yet without the necessary participants in this duck calling competition. When the show moved down to the city from New England, the expedition's heads left most of their professional duck callers behind in the belief that Long Island and New Jersey two of the most important waterfowl hunting areas on the continent would provide sufficient entries. However, local nimrods have been shy about demonstrating their lung powers at this modified form of the yodeling art, and the number who have entered could be found on the fingers of one hand. If the dearth continues, show officials may have to resort to a subterfuge and enter a few of the Indian moose callers in the hope that New York sportsmen may not recognize the difference. The attendance for the show was unbelievable, such as 70,000 for the first day in New York, and it was all ahead of the Boston show for the same period. Sheldon said, We entertained high hopes that the New York Exposition will exceed the New York 
England Mark in attendance before the show closes on Saturday night. And as I just said, it certainly did. 70,000 on the first day. The March 6th edition of Brooklyn Daily Eagle printed, The Sportsman Breathed Easier Today, securing the knowledge that the ancient but ear-splitting art of calling ducks was not dead. Just when little hope remained that any of the mystic clan of duck callers could be found, seven appeared and competed in the world's first duck calling contest at the Sportsman Show in the Grand Central Palace last night. So that had been on March the 5th. 1936. Continue on with the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Exhausted scouts along the Long Island and the Jersey coast had about given up their search over the marshlands for some overlooked duck yodeler who had not heard of the palace event. The touching plea in the Eagle on Tuesday brought John Rose of Bastic, Long Island, rushing in with his entry. Six others were later uncovered at points in Jersey and Maryland. But just whether or not the callers could inject the proper notes into their squawking on the two ducks on which they tried their persuasive powers at the palace tank as to why they were deaf couldn't be explained. The unsuspecting ducks went on swimming nonchalantly while the boys strained their vocal cords. The birds eventually had to be recovered by attendants. In another part of the exhibition hall, however, the ducks at the New York State exhibit set up a den that added to the consternation of the audience, most of whom were hearing a duck call for the first time. However, Joe Collins of Forked River, New Jersey, finally emerged the winner of the contest and was publicly acknowledged as the duck calling champion of the world. Irvin Grant, also of Forked River, was runner-up and Jack Matthews of La Plata, Maryland, finished third. In all, some 800,000 attended the eight-day sportsman show in New York. However, the duck-calling event was only moderately successful, which was attributed to there being a low number of contestants and mostly whistling-calling. However, it had a large number of visitors, and most considered it an improvement over the 1935 contest as the crowned duck calling champion of the world used a wooden duck call and performed a repertoire of calls. Knowing of New York's exposition success, Glenn, McCollum, and Tyndall knew they had a potential winner if the Post hosted a duck calling event. They knew duck calling was a serious business in the Arkansas Rice Belt where guides competed for the patronage of out-of-state hunters and where their reputation depended on their ability to imitate the sounds of the ballard, and above all, their ability to bring the ducks within shooting range. This ability required a better-than-average year for music, and it required hours and days of practice under actual hunting in the rice fields and flooded woods. The three leaders had heard for years the guides and sportsmen debate as to who was the best duck caller and had to listen to those who boasted they were the best. So with the facts in front of them, to settle the dispute, the three decided to establish an annual duck calling contest to see who was the best at competition calling. Moreover, to prove they were the best at competition calling, they would have to compete with out-of-towners, any age or sex, and could use any kind of instrument, including their voice. 
To do so, the leader said, we shall have a national duck calling contest to see who is best at the duck language. Each contestant will have to perform three calls, open water, feed, and mating call. It originated, as Dr. Glenn stated, the contest was originated by the Stuttgart Post of the American Legion as a means of celebrating the opening of the duck hunting season and was a means of publicizing the Arkansas rice belt as a duck hunting paradise. Thad McCollum, commander of the Stuttgart American Legion Post 48, sold the idea of sponsoring the contest to the Post, where it faced no resistance. It was then that the Post appointed a duck calling committee of three men, Dr. Glenn, chairman, and then McCollum and Arthur Shoemaker, to stage the event. Very early on, however, Vern Tyndall replaced Shoemaker as a committee member. The slogan from the very beginning in 1936 was to tell the world that Arkansas was a duck hunting paradise. By doing this, Dr. Glenn said, we could put Arkansas on the map. It was held November the 24th on Main Street of Stuttgart, two days before the opening day of the duck season and one month before the annual Arkansas Rice Carnival, which was held October the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd in 1936. The Rice Festival had been abandoned in 1928, but resurrected in 1936 due to the more prosperous conditions coming out of the Great Depression. The Herald and Review of Decatur, Illinois, had this to say about the contest. Stuttgart, Arkansas's bid for international fame by staging its first annual duck calling contest, Dr. H. B. Glenn, chairman of the American Legion Committee in Charge, proudly asserts, we are going to call the best duck caller world champion because so far as we can find out, this was the first contest of its kind ever held. Prizes were provided for the huntsman who best imitated the duck's open water call, mating call, woods call, and scarer call. A committee of Stuttgart huntsmen served as judges. The duck calling contest is, of course, a mere adaptation of the Illinois and Iowa hog calling contest, now a feature of state and county fairs, agricultural institutes, and farm bureau picnics. But Dr. Glenn and his Stuttgart committee followed the hog calling contest procedure too savagely. They had an opportunity to make the contest really worthwhile by leaving the decision to the ducks, sort of like they did in New York, rather than to a committee of judges selecting from the citizenry of Stuttgart. At hog calling contest, the winner is not selected by judges wearing hats, but by a drove of shoats in the far corner of the pasture. Ducks were not even represented at Stuttgart. Who is more competent to judge the persuasiveness of a woo-wee-wee or a quack-quack, a hog and a duck, or three members of the local committee on entertainment? So the Herald and Review said there were four calls they had to do. The open water, the mating, the woods, and the scare call. However, that is not true. I have in front of me Dr. Glenn's, a lot of his uh, information that he put down in, in letters and things, and he makes it very explicit that there were only three calls they had to perform, the open water, the mating, and the feed call. But they could go through a routine as he would in the fields under actual hunting conditions. 
just so he included each of the calls, three calls mentioned. This, this is reading from Dr. Glenn's letter. Now, the judging, which it was really uh, this done this way. Each judge then rates him on each call separately on a percentage basis with 100 considered perfect. And there's three judges. Then they added the three percentages. Then they added the totals of the three judges. Then they divided the grand total by nine to find the contestants' ratings. This is followed for each contestant. So you can see how they judged each for this first event in 1936. For the winner, the Cincinnati Inquirer for Thursday, November the 26th, 1936, printed Thomas East Walsh of Greenville, Mississippi, an accountant, was recognized today as the South's champion duck caller. He routed 16 veteran farmers and huntsmen in a contest last night with an exhibition that one fan said sounded more like ducks than ducks do. Walsh, unlike all but one other contestants, didn't use any mechanical calling device. He attributes his successful calling to his hobby, which is raising wild ducks. He has to call them all the time, he says. So you know how the judges scored it? And I want you to realize how close this event was from the three judges. Thomas E. Walsh, who won it from Greenville, Mississippi, voice calling, scored 94 and three-twelfths. Coming in second was Buck Simpson of DeWitt, Arkansas. He scored 90 and 11-twelfths. Third place was J.T. McCollum, and that J was John. John T. McCollum of Stuttgart. 89 and 7 twelfths, and that was the scoring for the first three places. There were 17 contestants from three states and several thousand spectators. He went on to say there will only be one contest, and that's to select the best all-around duck caller. This may be modified in the future contest if experience to this year's so dictate. Here is what Dr. Glenn had to say after the 1936 contest, more than what I just gave you. He said, 17 contestants from all over the Mississippi Valley answered the roll call in 1936 for the National Duck Calling Contest held at Stuttgart, Arkansas by Daniel Harder's post. These 17 contestants thrilled several thousand spectators gathered on Stuttgart's Main Street downtown which was won by Thomas K. Walsh of Greenville, Mississippi. The prize was a hunting coat worth $6.60. He raised ducks at his home. Rather than use an artificial call, he impressed the judges by quacking like a duck by using only the back of his throat. To say this was an ego buster would be an understatement, as the local boys were in shock and remained so until the next year. Walsh would be one of only two people ever to have taken the title without using an artificial call. The three originators were jubilant as they knew this would stir up even more controversy and lead to better attendance for the next year's calling contest in 1937. So the Post, three Stuttgart sportsmen, Dr. Glenn, Thad McCollum, and Vern Tyndall are credited with originating the National Championship Duck Calling Contest. 
It was as though the three recognized that the event would become a part of history and knew that those who engaged with Mother Nature directly would see themselves in a very specific way as part of the environment, their place in it, and their relationship to other species. Seeing the success the Stuttgart duck calling contest had with their calling contest, Campbell's Fairbanks Exposition Incorporated decided to give their duck calling contest another try in New York. In 1937, New York hosted the event again for 10 days at the Grand Central Palace. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle wrote February the 18th, the second episode in the duck yodeling drama was uncovered at the sportsman show in the Grand Central Palace. When the best minds of the committee were given the task to find the solution to the mystery of why a dearth of duck callers exist and why so few of them have dispatched their entries to the International Duck Calling Contest of Saturday, one such giving the task said, The way I see it, this duck calling business is falling on evil days. You know, like playing the oboe, flagpole setting, bunion derbies, and such. It's just that the duck callers are not so proud of their ancient and honorable possession as they once were. How would you like it if someone told you, your children, that their father was a duck caller? To whom it may concern, help wanted, duck callers needed. This is continuing in, the, in that same article. So to whom it may concern, help wanted, duck callers needed. In other words, they were short of duck callers like the previous one in 1936. You must be free Saturday night for the international duck and geese calling meet at the sportsman show. So now it's an international. This being the season when the ducks and geese callers are generally out of unemployment or engaged in other pursuits, in other words, the duck season's over, the management has anticipated a deluge of entries immediately after the first announcement was issued about the tournament. But whether the marsh lads are thoroughly content with their WPA handouts, and that's a government program to assist people during the Depression, or whether returning prosperity has sent them into more gainful but more prosaic callings to earn their daily wherewithal for muffins and java, the management doesn't know. But he does know that a duck calling contest without a duck caller is worse than having herring without salt or the proverbial ham without the accompanying eggs. Last year, a similar problem, duck call shortages, arose to harass the management. But the callers only required a little urging, and when the tournament was finally staged, some two dozen leather larynxed yodelers shook the chandeliers with their weird cries. However, for the 1937 duck calling event in New York, a few showed up, and, and the newspaper noted, quoting, In the meantime, the entry list at the palace showed some slight improvement. Long Island waterfowl guides are doing a little larynx testing these days in preparation for the duck calling contest, which has been set for the last night of the 10-day sportsman show, which opened in the Grand Central Palace today. The contest has been expanded to include the lads who call geese. It would be the last duck calling event for the Campbell Fairbanks Exposition Incorporated. When the shouting and ju jubilation had died away after hearing of the dismal showing of the 1936 New York Sportsman Show, the three leaders, Glenn, McCollum, and Tyndall, knew they had a hit on their hand in Stuttgart.
and couldn't wait for November of 1937. So this is episode 30, and I took you from the rice festival and duck dinners in the 1990s and the 1920s up until the first duck calling contest in 1936. And with episode 31, I'll take you with the duck calling second contest held in 1937 and go really through the 1940s or so and then stop there. And then episode three will follow. And that will be quite a surprise. You know, we mentioned uh, the duck calling contest in Boston and then in uh, New York. The Boston one, I think you could question as it sounded more like a whistling and not actual with duck calls, either artificial or with the voice. But one in New York, could it be the first duck calling contest? They certainly call them the world's champion. So we'll see what happens in episode three. So stay tuned for episode two of this duck calling series. So waterfowlers, if you get a chance, visit my website, waterfowling.net. You'll find uh, on my blog there a bunch of interesting old history stories on duck hunting, more so than what I've just given you in, in these podcasts. You'll also see all my books that I have on duck hunting, and they're all historical. I don't do any how-to books, so they're all historical in nature over the United States. And if you're interested in one, give me an email through my website, waterfowling.net. And I'll leave you with episode 30. Looking forward to episode 31, the second part of the Duck Calling Championship. And may God bless.